0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast. I'm Andrew Salvati, and joining me today in the studio is uh, Stephen Voorhees. How you doing, Steve? Good. How are you, Andrew? Good, good. Jonathan Bollinger as well. How you doing? Good evening, sir. How are you? Good, good. So, today on Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite moments in uh, television history uh, the introduction of. Of commercial television for the first time uh, in 1939 at the 1939 World's Fair by David Sarnoff, president of RCA. Um, So if you're interested in television history, uh, you're interested in the World's Fair, which we could probably do an entire podcast series on just by itself, uh, then you'll want to join us today uh, for today's episode. Uh, So hope you guys stick around.
1: The following program is brought to you in living color.
2: As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. It is with a feeling of humbleness that I come to this moment of announcing the birth in this country of a new art so important in its implications that it is bound to affect all society.
0: First episode today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the 1939 World's Fair, uh, which is called the World of Tomorrow. Um, Looking forward to the future, to brighter times, this was the depression, Um, things that we'll get into a little bit. So uh, the the significance it has for television, I mean... um most of us think of television as a media technology that kind of emerged uh, in the post-war era, the 1950s. We kind of all have this collective or cultural memory of, you know, Howdy Doody, of Leave it to Beaver, uh, Queen for a Day, if we remember that, uh, Lone Ranger, etc. Um, but, I mean, TV uh, existed as, you know, a, a, a uh, object of uh, scientific research. Uh, well, well before uh, the, the Halcyon days of the 1950s, so it didn't necessarily spring from nowhere, right? Um, it, it didn't come from kind of wartime technological innovation, but it, it very much uh, predated, predated um, uh, World War II. Um, So as a specific object of uh, technological research, television actually dates back uh, to the 1870s, um, at least as something kind of on paper uh, that uh, scientists were kind of talking to each other about um, and publishing journal articles. Uh, so back to the 1870s, where the idea for, uh, for photography, for cinematography, radio, um, all these associated fields and technologies uh, have a history that kind of dates back even to the early 19th century. But for television specifically, uh, around the 1870s, mid-1870s, is a specific kind of end of research. Um, but what I wanted to focus on for this podcast in particular is a, uh, a specific moment in television history, namely uh, the ultimately, uh, ultimately unsuccessful first introduction of commercial television at the 1939 World's Fair. Um, I think it's an interesting moment to talk about. Uh, not only because a lot of people may not know that television had uh, such an early introduction in the United States, um, and again it was slightly earlier an introduction in, uh, in European countries like England and Germany, um, but TV's introduction at the World's Fair of 1939 by RCA President David Sarnoff, a character who we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Uh, it was much uh, a much publicized and ballyhooed event um, that really encapsulated ideas about uh, what techno- uh, television technology was all about, uh, what it could be used for, how it could contribute to uh, democratic society both as a source of, of entertainment and education and instruction. Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit about the political and economic backstory um, of why Sarnoff and RCA chose this particularly uh, well stage managed event, uh, the 1939 World's Fair, to kind of force the FCC's hand uh, to uh, sort of uh, give their blessing to a certain uh, a certain system at the beginning of 1939. Uh, David Sarnoff had uh, boldly declared that RCA would sell 100,000 sets uh, with the introduction of uh, television at the World's Fair, uh, but he fell far, far flat of that that projection. So. Um after after this introduction, uh, it was kind of the event was kind of uh, called uh, derisively Sarnoff's folly by a lot of the the trade publications and and Sarnoff and RCA's competitors as well. Um, so it was kind of a, a failed effort, but interesting nonetheless. In that it was uh, the 1939 World's Fair was the introduction of uh, commercial television. In the United States, um, even though, you know, sales of sets and production of content really wouldn't pick up until uh, the 1940s and 50s, kind of the, you know, the, the halcyon days that we remember.
1: I think a lot of that had to do with the economic condition, though, of the country at the time, right? You're coming out of the Great Depression. There's not a lot of money. Right. Uh, TV is an interesting um a uh, piece of technology for advertisers, for companies that want to try to find the consumer again. However, it's a very expensive technology. And so you don't have a lot of people buying it. I think that's part of where Sarnoff's folly comes from. Right. Is that it was just before people were economically capable of buying it, and you look after World War II, when the economic uh, conditions improved, people started going out and buying television sets, as well as the technology for TV, the Iconoscope also it needed to evolve to not only become um, better in terms of picture quality, but also better in terms of manufacturing it on a mass scale to then lower the price for consumers. So there were a couple of conditions there that I think, even though Sarnoff was well ahead of his time, you needed to give Americans a a decade or so to get used to this idea of radio with pictures and then to also allow the economy to improve. And I also think that another component of that is World War II, the need for news, the need to see pictures of what's going on in the world that radio could never deliver. Right. And so you right. come out of the war, you have money, the economic conditions improved, but you also just realized a major event happened and not many Americans saw it. They only heard about it. And so I, I think the need for television really looked like it was serving a purpose there.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Jonathan, did you want to? Oh, no, I was just going to to jump in there. I, I understand what you mean, Steve. But at the same time, and we have newsreels, we have magazines um, along with radio. So. And still photography. So uh, I get what you're saying, but I, I, I don't think the need for television and war really comes to the awareness maybe till the late 60s in Vietnam in a very negative way. Now, I'm not saying uh, I know that for sure, but I think it's a little strong to say that uh, there's that connection between war and and, and and TV with World War II.
1: Perhaps, I, I think my argument would, would stem from the immediacy of television. So the, the, of course there's film reels, you see them in theaters. I, I think the issue with that is that they're pre-produced. You, you're getting news right. at a much slower pace than possibly what newspapers could deliver. And people knew the immediacy of radio um, if you think about the Blitz and, and the way Murrow was able to communicate sure. what's going on, that, that the idea that this is radio with pictures almost to me is a selling point for Sarnoff to say, this is immediacy that you can see and hear. And yeah. so that's where my argument would stems agree. from. I agree But, it, with that. you know, I think you're right that it's a strong argument to make. And, you know, I don't have enough information no, to and, back No, and that it's, that
2: that's true. Live, you think of what? What the golden age of TV becomes in the early 50s is that it's only on for a few hours in the evening. It's all live. Most of the time, they didn't even record. End up recording the programming. Sure. Only a few kinescopes survive. So yeah, I think that definitely uh, uh, helps the understanding that it is a an immediate medium uh, that's not for the long haul. At least at that po- at that point in time.
0: Yeah, I know, and I point out too that that was one of that was certainly one of Sarnoff's uh, selling points. Uh, he actually in a few of his articles, uh, one particularly that I remember from uh, pop. Science that was published in 1939. He specifically made the point that uh, television unlike newsreels kind of uh, takes takes well it was it was all men in those days right so it takes the man out of the house uh, so he can see the rest of the world right um, so there definitely was an immediacy there that that he was interested in promoting and he specifically contrasted the abilities the capabilities of television to newsreels to that extent uh, and he said uh, something along the lines I'm paraphrasing here that um, you know where newsreels and movies uh, show show the audience audience, uh, something that was recorded in the past, television has the capability of, you know, much like radio, like you said, Steve, of showing things that are happening right now. Um, so there's this kind of, this kind of idea, strange idea that, you know, uh, news wasn't getting to the American consumer fast enough, that television could certainly do it. And of course, you know, David Sarnoff had, had a, you know, financial and professional interest in making that case. Um, but I mean, I, I just wanted to point out that that was certainly, certainly one of Sarnoff's selling points. When we talk about the World's Fair in 1939, we also want to keep in mind some of the historical context. What was going on in the United States and internationally at the time, right? So 1939, of course, we all remember uh, the Depression 30s. Uh, The US stock market uh, crashed in 1929, uh, greatly affecting not only the American economy, but the world economy in in tremendously terrible ways. um, That kind of bottomed out in the early 1930s. and the response to that was after, um, you know, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt was elected, he initiated a lot of programs and initiatives uh, to kind of provide at least – put put some brakes on how far the Depression was going to, you know, pull the U.S. economy to try to kind of get us out of it. Um, some of those had to do with um, – unemployment. So uh, the Roosevelt administration initiated the Works Progress Administration. Uh, there are a lot of farm subsidies uh, kind of helping the American farmers out. Um, but the the general idea is that, you know, by 1939, um, the United States economy was beginning to recover, uh, but there was a recession again in 1937 and 1938, uh, which affected empl- employ- uh, employment. Um, and to many uh, observers, it seems as though, you know, the United States might not necessarily uh, ever recover uh, to the extent, you know, that it had been prosperous in the heyday of the 1920s. Um, and kind of out of this uh, anxiety over the economy, you um, well, not only anxiety, but also the material effects of the economy, Uh, a group of uh, New York businessmen uh, got together in 1934 and 1935 and decided that maybe a good way to kind of boost the New York uh, local economy, to boost business and industry, would be to host one of these, you know, World's Fairs that had been going on, uh, you know, since the 19th century and kind of had been uh, a gathering point uh, to showcase a lot of uh, the newest innovations, in science and technology, uh, even the arts, um, in one place and kind of show everyone uh, New York, the New York economy, attract tr- uh, uh, tourists and visitors in. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of the 1939 World's Fair, and it needs to be situated kind of in that economic context. Um, but it's also ironic Uh, that this this celebration of the World of Tomorrow in 1939 uh, occurred uh, simultaneously with this kind of looming uh, geopolitical uh, military conflict that, you know, became the Second World War in September of 1939. So by the time the fair opened in April of 1939, uh, Germany had annexed Austria. Uh, They had uh, invaded and annexed Czechoslovakia. Uh, Italy had, uh, well, long since invaded Ethiopia. Uh, The forces of Imperial Japan were marching through China uh, fascists, uh, the fascists under, uh, Franco in Spain had just won a civil war. Uh, so it's this time, you know, in early 1939 in which, uh, totalitarian ideologies were really becoming ascendant around the world. Um, so, you know, the, the irony is that this, this celebration of the potential of democracy, uh, is occurring, uh, with all of this kind of other, uh, badness, uh, going on around it.
2: Um, And the the connecting point there with this story, if we're talking about the introduction of television at the World's Fair, is that this fair was predicated on having international involvement. And we'll talk about down the road is in the first year. And the the other thing, too, is a lot of people, we've sort of heard about the 39 or the 64 World's Fair because they're both at the Flushing Meadows. but. Um, The 39 World's Fair was actually two seasons, and they're actually two very different seasons. The first one is the one we all remember, which is this very futuristic world of tomorrow, and getting um, uh, the Soviet Union involved as well as other uh, international uh, uh, contributors was hugely important. And then that kind of got downplayed and changed because of these international tensions that you're mentioning uh, in the second season. So, um, yeah, it's important to have that context – um, and the glue for that is that World's Fair, because that's that's the context of where right. RCA and Sarnoff are sort of introducing this this thing that cha- did change the world, but at the time it didn't seem like it didn't quite seem like right. it was going to. In
0: 1940, it becomes more about amusement. Right. Yeah. There was the there was, of course, in 19 the 1939 series, there was an amusement zone along with kind of, you know, all of the other uh, intellectual and scientific exhibits.
2: You're right. There's what what I didn't realize was in the first season, there were these. well, there are multiple spheres, multiple zones is what they were talking about. But one of them was this amusement zone. And so. At the while well, at the entrance, you had sort of this pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-science sort of uh, beckoning for folks to come be educated. Back in the amusement zone was the Aquacade, which was basically half-naked women f- swimming around in tanks. Right. Um, and then when – because ultimately, even though we remember this and it's become so legendary, it lost money in its first year. And so in the second mm-hmm. year, they switched out a bunch of the exhibits, and they really upped the amusement zone, which became the Great White Way – but it was more just cheap amusements in every way you want to right, imagine. Right. Um, so it, it's just, it's crazy.
1: And, and isn't that television's history, though, in a nutshell, that you start out <laughs> with these pseudo-intellectual <laughs> yeah. possibilities, and right. then by, what was it, 64, it's a vast wasteland right, right, of right. entertainment. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, that's it's a good hilarious. point to bring up. And I'd say also that um, the RCA exhibit at the World's Fair also, to some extent, kind of framed itself as a history of television up to the present moment. Uh, I don't know if you guys got to see the, um, the guidebook um, of for, or for RCA's uh, exhibit, uh, but the guidebook itself, I mean, we'll probably put a link to it. You know, yeah. on a on website, but anyway, the, the guidebook it's kind like of runs through. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's 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 a museum. It was a fully functioning television studio. Um, maybe we'll articulate I, this. In I think a, a lot of times way. when you
1: hear fair and exhibit, you think it's a little booth at a town fair, and it was not. It was a huge concrete structure, right? That was actually shaped like a radio tube in the middle, right? Yeah, and
0: yeah. It was this big, massive, you know, two two story structure. Yeah, um, that was that was pretty centrally located. Um, You know, there's kind of this communications and business zone. Jonathan kind of talked about the zones before. Uh, Yeah, but there was the RCA uh, exhibit, massive radio tube, as Steve said, giant radio antenna shooting out the top because um, they produced television there. There was a model studio um, that... Tours would go through, um, and evidently one of the tour guides would select maybe one or two members of, you know, the group that just came in to appear in front of the television cameras. Um, And there would be a bank of receivers. There were, I think, four different models, uh, RCA uh, models that were for, for sale in retail stores. You could go into Macy's or Wanamaker's and buy these things if you were sufficiently impressed at the fair. Um, and then they would ask, uh, these, these, uh, these tourists uh, a number of questions about, you know, like where they came from, you know, how they like the fair, you know, this kind of general chit chat. And, uh, the rest of the group could watch them on television right there. Um, and also, uh, we mentioned the radio tower. These, uh, images and the sound was broadcast, uh, from the World's Fair at Flushing, um, at a distance of, uh, I think, eight or nine miles. Back to uh, Rockefeller. Uh, back correct? to Rockefeller, back to Radio City, where there were a number of uh, receivers likewise on public display. Um, and also, you know, we can't forget about the, the receivers that were on display in the department stores as well that were also uh, showing some of these images that were captured at the World's Fair. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's not just the RCA exhibit. You know, it's these other spaces throughout Manhattan sure. as well. And, of course, RCA engineers in their own households would have them. Maybe some, you know, particularly wealthy New Yorkers
2: will have bought a set. Well, um, and, and, and whether we can believe this or not, RCA's own numbers, but they, they had... Quoted themselves as saying in in thirty nine, there are three thousand sets around New York. Now I assume they mean New York New York City. Um, so very small number. Right. They were for for four years. It was thirty nine. Four years they were planning this World's Fair. I mean, if, at least right. Um, I mean, this was not something they decided in January. Hey, this might be fun to do over the summer, and then summer they put it up. I mean, these aren't as as Steve was saying; these aren't shacks. I mean, these are full built uh, uh, structures with a, over an incredible uh, amount of space. I can't remember the specific dimensions, but it's a certain mileage, um, and they were to last for. They did last for two years. Now, along with what you're mentioning with the um, uh, with the RCA. Uh, studio that was you know built uh, they did similar things in interactivity with uh, the telephone you could wait in line go in there and actually make a long distance telephone call of yeah. your choice publicly in front of everybody else who's waiting in line in these sort of very modular uh futuristic booths and they'd have a big uh, united states map on the wall so i mean it's it's tough as in 2014 and not to date this podcast although we are by me just saying that hey, but in 2014 it's hard to think about the novelty of it, because that's really, I think, what television was looked at upon, at least by the mass of the U.S. Maybe not those of an upper class, let's say, living in New York City who were educated and in the know and sort of understanding, well, this is a technology that was coming. And uh, had the Depression not happened and then the war, you know, we, we'd already be dealing with this. Um, or maybe those who enjoyed, you know, a really fine radio set, you know, at home. Um for most of it, it just seemed like a novelty. It seemed like why would I need it? Like I've said before, you know, we have we have film. I go to some Saturday matinee all the time, sure. or, or every week rather. Um, I read my newspaper. I have comic books because we have to remember during this time, you know, you have comic books are huge comic strips. Um, I, I could, I, as wacky as it sounds, and, and Steve makes a good point about immediacy, but I could see someone on the street if I you showed me television and being like, eh. Yeah, it's right. cute, but I, I don't really yeah. see the future um, of it. So it's just it's just a very interesting time, along with as you're mentioning this this sort of moment between uh, between uh, uh, depression and war uh, yeah. for this technology to be publicly sort of introduced. Like, here's what we've been working on. Here's where we're going. And in some of the research I was doing, they said and it was in '37 that they had the first mobile uh, van units, which yeah. uh, uh, seems like bare basic technology now but that that's that's was new then and then to go back a little bit um found a great image we'll put it up on the uh we'll put it up on the website but there was a a, a, about the novelty of it buttons passed around that said that you were to wear if you were a a visitor to the fair that said i have been televised at the ford building have you so i mean this is this is kind of an experience to have uh, for sure um, the other thing I wanted to mention before I forget is we talk about sort of the, the television being new and sort of uh, 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 how expensive it was, was I did the calculation because from one of the source materials, they're talking about the prices of um, they're talking about the prices for going and attending the World's Fair. And so at the time, if you want to get into the fair, it was 75 cents, which right now. Uh, I, I think I could swing that even I'm yeah, a grad yeah, grad th- student. So. Yeah. But um back then, that's $12.48. And hey, that's still not bad it, for, uh, <laughs> well, prices for that we pay for something like yeah, this today. Cheaper than the yeah, movie. Yeah. But yeah. 12.48 was, you know, a ton of a ton yeah, of money back sure. then. And Then they calculated that if you did all the bells and whistles going to through the fair, everything that you could buy at the fair, it would cost you it was for, there were 14 it was it would be $14 total then. That is, in today's dollars, $233 wow. to go through. Now, if you place that, as you did in the beginning of this episode, that we're coming out of a, con- uh, a depression right. and and such, I mean, that's that's a lot of money to kind of get into this thing. Now, at the same time, and again, I don't want to get us too far off with some of the World's Fair context, but, you know, a lot of the reasons why the, the Fair lost money in the first season was because t- even though... Even though it initially it was all this high-minded, we're going to do science. But if you really look at the exhibits, it wasn't very sciencey. Right. Even the very not very sciencey, there were still a lot of people went. This seems over my head. I don't think I'm the right person hmm. to attend this fair. Um, and that's why they went to yeah. the dancing girls more prominently oh, and, okay. and whatnot
1: to get people in there. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, it's an interesting time. Um, Well, the return on investment, though, wouldn't it be more long term where even if the fair didn't turn a profit, you have Edward Bernays as the PR director for this fair. He must have understood that there were long term effects that if you at least start planting the seeds in people, you may not see the ROI immediately. But don't you think 10 years down the road, it was less of a surprise when some of these. You know, prices of televisions were dropping that people at least now knew what they were from the from from the not only the publicity of the fair, but the people who went.
2: You're talking about T V or the fair in general? I'm talking about I think both. Okay, well I'll just speak to the fair in general. My my thought on this is always what other option did you have? I mean, if you were struggling for eight years straight and somebody went, I'm gonna create a world's fair, please come that sounds better than starving or, or struggling in the street. I mean, this is kind of my, my argument against Brokaw's uh, terrible book, uh, The Greatest Generation, uh, you know, where he paints them as wanting to willingly go into this triumphantly and whatever. No, right. if I was 18 and kind of life sucked and you said, well, I could go have an action adventure and maybe get a pretty girl by being a hero, well, I'll choose that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's it's a better choice. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, if we take this out to I, – and I think – one of the interesting points of this, why we're interested in this and why we keep looking back on this, is it's such a hopeful moment. I mean, right. this 1930, especially in, 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 in contrast to what we know comes after, you know, two years later, four, three mm-hmm. years later, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yes, it was commercial. It, it was totally commercialized. Right. We're there to sell you Ford. I, and, and and for those of you listening and, and as well as our co-hosts here you know, look back at those some of those exhibits. I mean, the Ford exhibit with all the, it looks like one of those, I don't know if you remember when we were kids, the little little plastic slot car things that would kind of go around and go up steps and go back around. That's what the Ford exhibit looked like, all their new models. TV and the architecture and the other products and coming out of depression, it just makes for one hell of a, you know, comes for one hell of a statement to, um, you know, to really look ahead. And especially when you counter that to today, I mean, we have TED talks. I think that's probably maybe the closest analog to what we're talking about in this era. Right. Um, so it still exists, but not in that sort of I don't know. This is the scale of it, the the right. grandeur. I mean, hell, look at the look at the RCA model, which is what we're talking about. Yes, it looks like your grandmother's piece of furniture. But it's an, a magnificent piece of like yeah. I mean, look right. at th- I mean it's just it's just the scale of everything. And there's there's so a, I should say
0: there's uh, we'll probably get into it in another program. But there's there's a few specific reasons why uh, you know the carapaces the uh, the of uh, the televisions were were structured the way that they were and kind of resembled pieces of furniture. But yeah. to kind of evoke this you know this idea of 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 affluence and uh, and authority what? that this thing would look impressive in your house and it would be kind of a a, a shortcut to uh, to high society sort of thing had, but i mean that's well, you had to be affluent to buy
1: it though and i think sarnoff had to have known that that yeah. um the, the price of a four to five inch set was two hundred dollars yeah. right in, so in in,
2: th- in, 39 money. In, ni- in 39 in 1939
1: money 200 dollars. if you wanted a seven inch set or a 10 inch set you were really splurging at paying a thousand or more wow so you he yeah. had to have known that even though this was at a fair that maybe was only 75 cents to get into at the time yeah That you had to be affluent to be able to even afford one of these sets and that's why i think the roi has to be long term and he had to have known that that i i I think he overestimates What andrew said earlier he totally overestimated the sale of these sets but i don't know if he overestimated that in the affluent community or you know
2: i see what yeah I, i i see what you're saying now i think that's a great question maybe we'll do an episode on that which is after we do a little more research which is because you said in the beginning, Andrew, that this was considered at the time through uh, journalism, this is a folly for him. Right, right. Well, that's a great question right there is yeah. what Steve's bringing up. Was it really a folly or was he a little smarter than than people gave right. him credit for at the time?
0: So. Um, so Sarnoff and RCA invested between 10 and $20 million. Uh, that is somewhere between 170 and $340 million today. So, So quite a lot. Um, so, you know, they obviously, Sarnoff and RCA, really wanted the FCC to make some kind of decision, give their official blessing uh, to some kind of broadcasting standard so they could get on with the business of broadcasting um, content and, of course, selling sets, uh, both ways to make money. Uh, RCA, of course, uh, had a broadcasting subsidiary, which is NBC. So when we talk about RCA at this time, we're also talking about our, uh, NBC. So since the FCC hadn't, you know, kind of made it any decision through the 1930s, uh, Sarnoff's introduction of television, RCA television at the World's Fair, um, was kind of a way to present the FCC with a fait accompli, right, to, to kind of force their hands, say, hey, look, um, you know, RCA has made this recommendation of what the standards should be. Um, we've had experimental broadcasts going on for quite a while. We are ready uh, we don't necessarily want to wait around for you guys because who knows how long it's going to take for you to make a decision on this um, with so many you know, competing interests and so much money at stake. Sarnoff's introduction at the World's Fair of television uh, kind of became this way to say that, hey, you know, RCA, NBC – we're ready to start broadcasting. Uh, we're going to do it. And, of course, his competitors were, were kind of pissed at this. They're saying uh, wh- what they said in, in a lot of the newspapers and the trade publications is, oh, Sarnoff's just trying to stampede the market. You know, he's just trying to push all this stuff out there um, at the World's Fair and kind of, you know, wrap the FCC around his finger because he had the tremendous
1: resources to do that. And
0: they're, they're you know, clearly and probably understandably upset at this.
1: Yeah, I, I think also if you look at how it was presented at the World's Fair, right? The World's Fair kicked off on April 30th, 1939. Right. When did RCA uh, debut television? 10 days prior, right? right so right. They're, they're jumping the gun on the president. So I think it was clearly a PR move to, as you say, stampede this market. Right, right. Because I, I, and I think whether it's Bernays or, um, or Sarnoff who decided to do this 10 days earlier. But the idea is if, if you're filming the president, With FDR to be the first president on TV, America would be maybe amazed by television, but they'd be focused on the content. What is FDR saying? We can see the president. This is amazing. And television would just be the medium in which this would happen. But if you go 10 days earlier and make it about television, now you're looking at the medium. Showcasing itself, right, Right. and talking about what this medium is and what you're watching. um, That, to me, that is stampeding the market. He,
0: uh, he, and whether we we can't really say whether Bernays was involved in it at all, but certainly Sarnoff kind of had this idea to, you know, uh, debut. uh, Well, to dedicate the RCA Pavilion, uh, as Steve said, uh, ten days before, which is. you know, it's kind of, it reminds me of what uh, Daniel Borstein called a pseudo event. Absolutely. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. yeah this this phrase, but, and you know, I think pseudo events really, they, they, they really have this, this resonance or this currency with television, like television becomes this medium through which uh, publicists uh, start creating these fake news events. And then if you think of this initial uh, debut, this initial introduction um, in April uh, of, of 1939 as this kind of very well stage-managed event, you have you know the pseudo-event almost from the outset of the introduction of television,
1: which which I think is kind of fascinating. But it goes back to whether or not is this a novelty or a need, right? And yeah. certainly at the World's Fair, they're selling it you can listen to um, you know the, the speech made by Sarnoff that ten minute speech on April twentieth, and you can see this this to him is a huge information source, right? It's it's sort of highbrow entertainment where you're going to learn and see the world and do amazing things, and so I, he's selling it I think as a need, not so much a novelty. And
2: and that's that's the interesting point there is is, is uh, the other question is, is, is does he truly believe that or is he trying to make it fit the theme? of the World's Fair, which is that was what it was supposed to be, which is educational and highbrow and, and the world of tomorrow and hope and optimism, right. etc. Right. Et it is an art which shines like a torch of hope in a troubled world. It is a creative force which we must learn to utilize for the benefit of all mankind.
0: The text from the
2: dedication speech in yeah. April 20th. And that's yeah. I mean that's a microcosm for the fair itself. I mean the, the, and I think you said this earlier right, regarding television. You know it's art. It's it's technical know-how. It's a you know it's a machine. It's uh, aesthetics. Uh, I mean look at the right. fair. I mean the, I, I I'll we'll put these up on the website. But there's I didn't realize how many because all the world, World's Fair photography that I remember is black and white. But there's a surprising amount of color, uh, home movie footage. Oh yes, I've seen And some. still photography. But if you look at how that was lit up at night, beautiful colors. Yep. The aesthetics of the architecture, etc. And 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 it may look goofy now, but you know you look at the the original RCA model, which you see in those those photographs with its you know the the, the top is tilted up with the mirror so that the image could be reflected. And the, the viewer almost reminds me of like an old Nickelodeon or something. But, you know, I mean, it's this beautiful wood, whatever the hell it was made out of. You know, right. it, it, it's aesthetics, it's art, it's crass commercialism, it's everything. I mean, that's, like you said, that's TV. But, I mean, that was the fair as well. So it's, it, right. it, it, it's not a simple thing. But I think it, it's that weird mishmash that keeps us interested.
0: I mean, I, I just wanted to be careful about reading, you know, Sarnoff's boosterism and his rhetoric too cynically. Uh, I mean, we kind of all come from this, uh, you know, this, this, critical, you know, scholarly background, which we kind of maybe look twice at things like this, but by all accounts that I've read, and I'm inclined to Inclined to sympathize with him is that um, you know Sarnoff really he really believed all of this stuff. I mean he was he was a businessman who kind of saw himself as uh, you know through his uh, you know through private enterprise you know the, uh, the the private enterprise could could benefit and bolster democracy and he kind of saw television as really contributing to that. So it's this kind of really progressive idea um, of of private enterprise. In the service of the public, so private enterprise for public benefit, um, and I think I think he really believed that. Um, I have this this quote from uh, Kenneth Bilby, uh, who was uh, Sarnoff's uh, biographer, also worked uh, himself for NBC for a little while. But um, Bilby says uh, in his biography of Sarnoff that um, quote: uh, Television had, without question, become an obsession for him. Talking about Sarnoff, it represented the consummation of his long odyssey in search of respect acceptance and fame within a chrysalis of power so i think all of these things um uh, that that's that's end quote um but i think all of these things uh you know were, were were really uh twinned and combined in sarnoff's idea of the product that he was bringing into the world or he was helping bring into the world um is his, his uh, rca television um and I think I think it would be difficult to kind of disentangle these things and saying, oh well, you know, he was just a businessman uh, who is, you know, trying to, you know, earn money for the company. Well, well, yes, uh, but I think he also genuinely believed that, you know, this 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 product was going to be a, a benefit for humanity and for uh, America uh, specifically. But I mean, these things I do think you, we we can't really disentangle them all that much.
2: But um, you know, there's a sort of a. Uh, uh benign cruelty via corporatism that may be a, a existing there. Um, it is interesting if he himself truly believed these things, you know, the ideas are almost like a neoliberalism, right? Right. That free right. through free market and through increased, uh, 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 uh commercialization, I'm going to somehow free or help you or, or make your life better. And, you know, again, we have to study this more. So we understand what the ideas were, what his personal background, where his business philosophy is developed right. from, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I I I, 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 cede your uh, to uh, uh, my position to to your point, but um, I just I I, I don't want to give this guy too much credit because again, if you're working from a position of power, it's easy to not be questioned. You know, it's easy right. to just assume you're doing things the right way or that this will be this the outcome will be okay. Um, so we'll, we'll, hold this for now. We'll, we'll come back to this. Yeah, we'll no, no, I'm, I'm certainly not but,
0: suggesting that we should accept, you know, his, his viewpoint uncritically at all. I mean, that's, that's what we do. And hopefully this podcast will do as well, which is kind of present these ideas and noodle about them a little bit and look at them from different angles. Um, and certainly, you know, from our perspective here as, you know, our, our critical perspective, we can, we can definitely push these things a little bit. Well, and I, um,
2: I- and I also I also mention that because, you know, we spent some time today talking about uh, or you had brought up pseudo events. Right. And so right. that gets us to this idea of intentionality, you know, which yes. is which is, you know, is it just promotion and disingenuousness? And if so, where does that originate? Right. And does that combine? Right. So, again, I'm not yeah. I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but this is this is why I think in this way as a critical
1: you know yeah. media scholar. And, right. You know, and I think the Frankfurt School kind of comes into play here, too, because if you look at the price of sets, Only the affluent could possibly afford these sets. So when he thinks of television as an art form, is he really looking at this as a highbrow um, kind of elite technology? Sarnoff says it's going to affect all of society, but is he really seeing this as who's controlling it? Is is this a form of technology that will be controlled by the elite only? Um, and, And how did he plan on using it? Because clearly, from the prices, it doesn't look like the radio side, which had up to this point been subsidizing the um, investment in the development of this technology, right. he wasn't making this available to everyone. So it, it didn't seem as though that radio was going to continually subsidize television, but that he was developing something brand new that it would then have legs to stand on its own. And I would think that right. would be indicative by the prices. So I question really from his speech how genuine he was when he, he really kind of said this is going to be a democratizing right um, you know technology well, for everyone
2: and honestly i kind of hope andrew's correct because that's even more interesting if, if Sarnoff himself is so delusional to his own inconsistencies within mm-hmm. his own philosophy. I'm
0: sorry. I just, I just wanted to go back to one of your points, Jonathan. Actually, which was you know we also have to read all this stuff within the larger context of hopefulness and progress that the kind of that the fair really represented. You know, despite economic difficulties, uh, despite the high unemployment rates, despite the war looming on the horizon. Um, and I really think you have to read you know Sarnoff's public statements kind of in that context. That uh, yeah, he was he was really optimistic, and a lot of other people were too. Um, to a certain extent, he kind of had to be um, optimistic at that point, with so much uh, you know so much want and deprivation, and you know impending crisis going on. Um, so I think that's that's kind of why we did the historical context in the beginning to kind of talk about this atmosphere of hope. <laughs> Uh, So we're just about out of time for this episode of Inside the Box and we're going to close the book on this magical moment of the World's Fair of 1939 and the introduction of commercial television and commercial television service by David Sarnoff and NBC. Uh, really an important moment as we learn not only the introduction, but uh, a kind of promise for the future, of what the future would hold, this kind of democratic vision of what television would be as the, the newest, newfangled form of electronic communication, uh, which which promised to, to be a torch uh, in, a, in a dark and troubled world. Uh, so, uh, for Andrew Salvati, uh, Stephen Voorhees, and Jonathan Bullinger, so long.